Welcome to season three of Ask Adelaide and Anna. I'm Adelaide Jagade. And I'm Anna Ile, and we are artists and friends. This stay-at-home season, we give advice to both individuals and art institutions. We're recording from a basement bedroom in Portland, Oregon, in the U.S. And here by a window in a studio apartment in Stavanger, West Coast, Norway. You'll hear us talking with art students. From Kunstskolen i Stavanger, artist friends in Oslo, and staff at Nationalmuseet in Oslo. Mostly recording from all of our phones. And now we'll hear from an artist friend. My name is Ida. I'm 37 and an artist living in Oslo. Um, I have two kids and in parallel to my art practice, uh, I also work as a elected representative in art, the art union. Yeah, working mostly with drawings. Uh, yeah, well, we saved some uh, money questions for you. I'm also in the union, disclosure, full disclosure. But uh, Ida has been around for a while. So I'm going to start with the first question. I'm going to have a performance at a national institution. Are there any set guidelines for me to indicate how much one should get paid by an institution? I will have a meeting with the institution and I'm wondering how should I argue for my pay? It's difficult to prove that the performance costs even though there is a lot of work in it. Yeah, common question. Uh, and no, I'm sorry to say that there isn't like any set sums that you could ask for, uh, but that you of course should prepare yourself for that meeting. And with preparation, I'm thinking uh, deciding yourself on a number that you think is fair based on what you used to be paid or what you hear people getting paid when in like an idyllic situation. Uh, and then of course you should divide it in a difference between like a fee uh, and a vedlag. Anna, could you help me with translating the... Okay, no, I need to Google this because I've... Yeah, I, I Googled some words <laughs> in preparation. <laughs> <laughs> should have known that that would come up. Uh, remuneration. So you kind of you make a, a difference in or like you defer uh, what you're being paid to make the work. If you're making mm -hmm. it, especially for the institution, they ask you to make a new piece for them, for example. That's more expensive for them than you using a piece you've been showing before. Take under consideration like the. Uh, time you spend or like materials and these things like the cost you have on materials and working time hmm. making the piece and then vedlag uh, which were the English word Anna? Renumeration yeah uh, that is what you paid for showing of work so in performances that basically means that you should have some kind of pay every time it's showed because when you show like a sculpture or painting, uh, you get paid for not having the work in your studio or kind of like a rent for the work. Before you go into, into a meeting with them, you should have like a set sum that you're going to ask for. Maybe start off a bit higher than what you want to <laughs> settle for. And then also you can contact your local art union and get like more like 
directly guidance for our members at least. I think artists feel insecure, but I think as a field we will like have to be more aware of the fact that negotiation is part of just a deal. We don't want like that kind of disturbance, but uh, it's just a part of being an artist. Mm-hmm. But it is a little more difficult when you when you work with performance. I mean, cause cause if I don't work with performance, I can put up a budget or like ideal a budget, and there will be all these additional costs, and then it can be more hard to argue like I want this much money, and the only the money goes for is just my fee, or like if it's hardly any travel costs, hardly any you know like it's yeah it can be difficult to. I understand. I'm just saying like uh, it's something that one should kind of focus on and just just take time to become more like skilled and comfortable on it. But then of course like as a performing artist I kind of get what you're saying with the budget but then still you have preparation time set the sum what you think those hours are paid remember that you are educated you have a studio loan you have a studio you have expenses and then of course you can't have one job fix taking care of all of your expenses but mm-hmm. we need to we need to be like uh, be reflecting that in our budgets and then maybe even more so with performance artists they'll have uh they have like a their their possibility or of of sales is like a lot lower than someone who produces like physical stuff so maybe that yeah. should make that their fees should be even higher or you have to like i guess just sort of prove to yourself that this is <laughs> this costs and it has yeah. like a different economy than other types of work yeah it's unique singular pieces for and especially if it's for that institution in particular and they have they wanted to make a new piece it's a commission commissioned work is of course something that they should be paying more for than uh, if they ask you to do another version of a, a performance they've already seen for example mm. other setting it's a big problem for artists that we don't feel always like safe enough to stand our ground when it comes to working out and negotiating deals like Mm. this. But I would say it really helps to talk with colleagues and the union because then sometimes if if I've been asked I would like I will literally like name drop someone I've talked to because then Mm. I feel like I'm not alone like I I (laughs) this is I'm not I'm not just like pulling this out of my ass like I I've done my research I've done my job and this is what it costs. Mm-hmm. That's very smart. And I know like the Norwegian Artist Union are working more in terms of having contract standards and these things available on the web page. So reading through standard contracts and preparing yourself for a meeting is always nice. When you're not prepared, you can easily come off aggressive or just too silent or these things. But if you're well prepared with good, clear, fair argument, you're more likely to have a good turnout of a negotiating meeting. I strongly advise artists to ask for a meeting and have a contract set up and be prepared. And for me, it's coming up with a number that's not going to make me feel cheated. 
you know, like, I don't want to, I don't want to feel cheated in the end or feel bad about how much I gave and how little I got in exchange. Like you feel you're pouring out of yourself if you're constantly underpaid. Yeah. So this uh, question starts with, hi, both of you, really enjoying the podcast, but here's my question. As an educator, should I ban materials that we know are very detrimental to the environment from the course that I lead? Context. An example could be resin, synthetic dyes, or perspex. Perspex, also known as, uh, I think, plexiglass in the U.S. Um, I should add that 91% of plastic waste isn't currently recycled. We know that the use of such materials is degrading our earth, waterways, human health, and eliminating habitats and life as we know it. I would add that almost every single student I teach, or have ever taught, uses plastic in some way in the creation of their work. Please help. I'm specifically interested in the responsibilities of the institution versus the individual, uh, you know, student freedom. Ooh, I think that question is kind of uh, very relevant and showing up like oftener just in regular studio visit when I'm not like an artist union representative with just an artist visiting other artist studio now these days. Awareness yeah. of environment is so increasing. I just I just believe in collective responsibility and not individual. Uh, and the fact that artists make like single pieces most of the time, like exclusive one piece per it's not like mass production we are doing but mm -hmm. then i kind of get how it becomes more complicated when you teach as well but then as a teacher i guess you could teach awareness uh, because like i say it's to to help climate change you need like big collective effort mm. And so when I've been working with specific materials, I can also realize like, okay, while I'm doing this, I'm, I'm giving value to this material. I'm, I'm, I'm pretending as if it's neutral, like I'm pretending as if it's just doing something, but uh, by using it, I'm already sort of approve, approving it. Or I, I think that the environment has to be, be like be, <laughs> be put to a certain level where we, where we discuss sort of the con content of the material in yeah. on a higher level. I, the first um, university course that I taught was textile design. And one of the most important things to me was having students understand what the materials are. Because there's a lot of things, you know, like a lot of students had never even looked at the tags on their clothing to see what they were made of or thought of what those things are. Like a lot of people don't know what's the, di what's the difference between artificial and synthetic, um, you know, textiles and uh, why you would use certain things and which, what the process is of harvesting certain materials. Like for instance, um, one of the things I posted on the online platform where we shared information was about Angora, which, you know, a lot of people just, it's like a soft material, but they don't know that it comes from a rabbit. They don't know the conditions that the rabbit is in, you know, the, that it's like forcefully at times like in mass production and ripped ripped from the rabbit and it's like bleeding and shaking. So I wanted there to be a context, like these materials aren't just like you go into a fabric store and there's a roll of something beautiful and soft and you choose it because you like it, but there's like an actual, you need to know why you're getting it, what it is, what's happening. Um, and I mean, of course, all this requires a lot of research, but I think as educators, it can be uh, like, it can be easy enough to just build that into assignments. 
just like what what are you using and why what does it have to do with the concept you know because a lot of times people choose materials because they're cheap and a lot of assignments for students they don't think they're going to have them forever so in the end I don't know if it's like this in Norway but at the end of the school year if you walk by a dumpster near an art school it's just filled with all kinds of projects and there's just it just becomes trash and I think a lot of that has to do with the pace and the expectation of how much work people should make because if you if you're supposed to make like 10 pieces in a sculpture class you're going to choose cheap materials you know and you're going to do what's fast and maybe you're going to use like hot glue or melted plastic or whatever um but then at the same time like quality materials like if you were going to carve out of wood it takes more time it takes more money it takes more knowledge um so i think it, it can be complicated cuz like you said you know when you're when a student is working there's like so many different considerations have you guys the, done any like shifts in your practices ever based on on sort of the environmental aspects of your um for me I fight between cuz I'm also a vegan so I a lot of times the materials that are biodegradable and sustainable in some ways are not vegan so like mm. a synthetic a synthet- synthetic brush has acrylic or plastic or you know and then a natural boar bristle brush is not vegan but like it's has a wood handle a metal band and bristles that will eventually disintegrate um and then also like beeswax is an animal product but then also like if i'm using other waxes they smell terrible and they're petroleum products and they make me feel sick so for me it's like <laughs> i feel like everything is tainted and everything requires making some kind of compromise Mm. um but I use I use dye synthetic dye and I would like to move away from that if possible but then at the same time natural dye isn't always sustainable if you're harvesting huge amounts of a plant and like you know there's 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 things throughout history where they've become extinct or on the verge of extinction because of humans wanting to extract color or some other property from them so it's it's for me it's like a constant struggle how about you? Most of my recent years I've been drawing slow on paper. <laughs> but I do use ink and these things, synthetic, of course. But I think my kind of view on it is, is the fact that I believe in, like I said, collective effort. And then on like individual, individualistic level, uh, you can only do as much. Which one should we take now? Um, okay. Um, how can I succeed as an artist living in a small, small town? Is it always better to move to a bigger city with a bigger art community? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's the best thing is what makes you happy, I guess. Uh, looking at numbers, you could say like in, in Norway, for example, like, 22% of Norwegian population live in Oslo or close to Oslo, but 48% of artists live in Oslo or close to Oslo. So artists seem, in looking at those numbers, artists seem to be uh, moving into cities more frequently than other uh, parts of the than other groups. Uh, but then I think it's everything is possible if you want it. And living in a small, 
city you or a really rural space you could have more opportunities i guess to create mm. your own stuff but yeah in the end you have to do what suits you and then these days we have endless digital tools so at least you have a larger chance of uh, being visible yeah i really think this like with visibility has changed so much in terms of internet that it would be so much more difficult to be visible or to people to know about your work if you would live in a small place and it's not at all like that anymore i have this philosophy of being artist like finding your ideal way of life that makes you happy because you're not going to get paid <laughs> you're not going to get as rich and famous as you should of course dream about but yeah <laughs> so it's all about being happy and choosing your way uh, so for you personally are you from oslo no mm -hmm. i'm one of the many norwegian who moves moved into oslo to get like an art education mm -hmm. and then stayed because all of the nice gallery spaces artist run spaces not so much for the studio situation obviously <laughs> and then the price is of course, like living in a smaller apartment with kids than out, I would do outside Oslo, but I like mm -hmm. the pace in the city. I think, yeah, I think what you said, like, um, you know, in putting it in a different way of making you happy is like, what, where can you thrive? And you said you like the pace of a bigger city. For some people that could be overwhelming. And for me personally, like a lot of friends have moved to New York, um, you know, after they graduated or a few years after. And I think having to work a lot of jobs just to pay my rent in a city like New York would snuff out whatever, just personally, I feel like I wouldn't, I would eventually give up on making art. I mean, I, it might not be true, but that's just how I feel based on uh, where I've seen myself thrive is when I have more freedom, like financially. So it can depend on, because some people would just go, 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 like they can work three jobs and they can go to the studio and they can go to all the events and and mingle and do all the things you know all the social things you need to do yeah for people to know who you are and and see your work i guess also it's important to sort of figure out like what it means like if you say like i want to i want to succeed like what does it mean to succeed as an artist like if mm -hmm. it's more than being happy like what is succeeding and then like if succeeding like to if i have an idea of what it means to succeed but at the same time i also know that i prefer to live my life as like i'm like i'm an 80 year old grandmother <laughs> so like oh i can't this can't have too much things happening to me like i need to take things like a little slow like, oh be gentle you know like i, yeah. I feel like i feel kind of like uh, fragile in a grandmother sense or like i want to <laughs> i want to have like restricted uh, i don't know i i can't have like too much stuff happening it would be i would make me anxious me too um, you know like if my ideas of success is a lifestyle and a life that i that I'm too tired to even think of. Like, why do I still keep that up? It's like my idea of success. Yeah, and producing work needs focus, right? So you need to be somewhere where you get energy. Either that's like being <laughs> in slow-mo or in high pace or whatever, but yeah. Well, I think this person who asked the question definitely should be happy because now there are like so much pep talk in a way, like... <laughs> Yeah, I like this advice thing because you sit there sound like you have answers, but kind of just making them up. Should we ask one more question? Do we have time for one more? Yes, one more 
oh my god one more small question and then they're so big these questions what should be the most important task of museums in the field of contemporary art come on short answer (laughs) (laughs) i think i have an answer for that as well (laughs) no i think um like a, a a big museum especially like a national museum should be democratic and show transparency and then I think there are really good international guidelines for museum. Uh, ICOM International has really good ethical guidelines. So just to be like boring artist uh, union <laughs> representative, I would say follow ICOM's ethical guidelines in the way you run your museum. So what is, uh, please tell, tell us to our listeners, what is ICOM? And what kind of ethical stuff is there? Uh, yeah, ICOM is an international network for museums. And all the museums who's part of that uh, network, they have agreed to follow ICOM's guidelines. Uh, and they're, of course, like I, I can't really... Uh, I haven't learned them. <laughs> to, uh, what's the English word for utnat? Uh, Bright heart. It's just about like running the museum and maintain a collection with the perspective of that you're doing it for the public and that it should be like preserving and you have a duty to acquire works and collect with like a collective perspective on things. Uh, That you have a focus on the fact that you're working with public inheritance. It's not a market, it's not a, it's an alternative to all of that market thinking and that kind of ideology. You should develop its field and the this discussion around art. Yeah. So when you say um, museums should be democratic, what is that? What do you mean by that? Being democratic is all about like uh, transparency, uh, that their decision making is clear and open and that like deals they do or the way they collect or works they focus on in their collection and all of these things should be part of like a open and public discussion and debate. As an artist representative I also think that I should have committees who's buying the work with artist representatives who's democratically elected for that position the kind of the scope of the museum when they look at work they would like to acquire should be based on many eyes and many thoughts and part of like a democratic discussion decision making on rather more hands than fewer if i had to answer this question i think maybe i would think that the most important task of museums in the field of contemporary art would be to properly I mean, it's not—it's a very hard task, but to properly represent the time that we're in. Yeah. So you look, you know, you see a lot of exhibitions now where they're looking back and seeing who was left out at that time. You know, like women were painting at the same time as all these supposed masters and mm. people of color were making work and people were making abstract work at the time when people were, you know, when figurative work was being celebrated. And so there's like all these revisions. And I guess the to me, the most important task would be like, don't 
wait for history to look back and say what you missed yeah. like make it easier and... for the future like so we don't yeah. have to do all this we talk a lot about I don't know if we talk about it a lot on the pod- podcast but about this idea of quality and maybe mm. like loose loosen that idea because it changes so much so just you know have an accurate representation of what's happening in the world what's your relation to the National Museum now they are producing you programming you oh yeah they're com- we've been commissioned Well, the best trick in the book for a museum is, of course, to program your own critique. Uh, But then if you just program your own critique without taking the topics being discussed and that the critique that is coming forward in that programming under consideration Mm -hmm. and taking it seriously, then then it's just a trick in a way. (laughs) Yeah, we're kind of curious about... But yeah, we've been kind of curious of like... Uh, how can we get something out of this or when are we when is this a trick but then I guess we've sort of figured out as long as we can we can create some good content but uh, (laughs) but hopefully they'll some people are listening and but then facilitating your own critique is is a good thing but then taking the critique under consideration is even better looking at the National Museum they have also this new gigantic building now being politically decided. They have a lot of, uh, in the kind of the, when you, when we as a union give critique to the museum, we will of course address the director, but then we are also aware of the fact that she acts on behalf of the board and the board has a board leader who is put there by uh, the, the culture department. So there's like a clear change of in the hierarchy yeah. where you can see where the politics or the acts of the museum is clearly under political guidance. No, I think it's been very obvious as well now when we're trying to figure out like um, uh, we want the question, no, we want the museum or people at the museum to question themselves, but who actually have the power in the museum to do so publicly, you know, like how critical can you be from the inside? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's... Um, no, but I, I think when you address this question, you can always remember how complicated a museum are as so like a fiddling body all over the place. Yeah. Um, all of these things. So like looking at governmental politics is of course something that we focus on and then I think we should all remember that the museum is it's ours actually it's a collectively officially owned stately museum Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah I think that shouldn't be forgotten right and I think that should be felt too you know like people should feel like the museum is theirs and if they don't then there's a problem and now we hear from staff at the National Museum. My name is Ellen Marie Fodstad. Uh, I'm a curator education, but now it's called curator learning at the National Museum of Norway. I've been there for <clears throat> just a year and a half, so I'm quite a newbie. But I have been head of education other places before that. But mm-hmm. loving working at the National Museum, loving all the great colleagues and all the great art. Okay, now to uh, now um, 
Ellen is uh, showing her hat, which was pro- will probably be in one of the pictures. Probably. For the listeners who won't be able to see <laughs> this gorgeous hat. No, that's yeah. sad. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can maybe imagine the hat. It's a sun hat. Um, and it's for people with a big head, like me. <laughs> Are you ready to give advice? Yeah, sure. Let's not talk about hats anymore. <laughs> this this first question is a, you know, it kind of sums up a lot of the other questions. Um, so the question is, there is talk about making art accessible. What does it mean to make art accessible? Why is art not considered accessible in its present form? Put my hat back on and uh, <laughs> <laughs> for the viewers, I'm, I'm putting the hat in front of my face. Earlier on, um, people would be like, we have an exhibition, it's really great, you should come. If you don't come, that's sad for you. But now, it's more like, we talk more to the audience like, what do you want to hear? Let us, you know, make an event and let us do something that, so we can have a dialogue instead of just we saying, this is great art, come and see it if you like it or not so so i'm just trying to understand so does accessible means uh does somehow have to do with dialogue or some sort of like participation almost that's my my interpretation of it while working with the audience for just a long time um let me give an example for like the guided tours used to be a monologue where an expert would tell you about art now it's more about dialogue and and seeing things together and Making it uh, relevant and uh, giving like, um, I don't know, a view, a way in. Um, but accessibility is a difficult word for me because I don't like my, my field is contemporary art. And I don't, I don't want to make art uh, eatable or I, what I would like to do is, is give more people the chance to see the art and think mm. that this can be relatable to them accessibility makes it seems like safe that we're trying to make the art safe we are not but we're mm-hmm. trying to make it relevant um, for more people than before and, and opening up instead of closing in uh, for me uh, the the reason why i like to work in a museum is i like to meet people i like to talk to people i learn a lot from people i think the guided tours th- that i've had for example, I had a group of, of prisoners uh, that were talking to me about different artworks that I was showing them, but they were actually telling me a lot. And uh, I felt um, I felt so happy that I was able to meet them. We could have this dialogue instead of if I would just stand there and present the prisoners with this is art, this is da-da-da, this is from this and this cubism, then I would not get that chance to... To, to get to know them and, and they taught me a lot of things. What I love is making art accessible through talks with the artists since I work mostly with contemporary art. I'm so lucky to be able to talk directly to the artists and to hear their thoughts, the, you know, the road from the idea of the work and where it ended up. Mm-hmm. That is so, for me, interesting without giving all the answers away. It's just more like you, you get closer. You get closer to the mm-hmm. artwork. Accessibility is so many things. And it seems a lot of times uh, people can accept the ambiguity in a film, for example, like where everything isn't explained or the ending 
doesn't really answer all the questions you had. Um, but somehow when it comes to art, that seems to be a little bit more of a struggle. Like, I think a lot of people just shut down. They're just like, I don't know what this is about. But I do think dialogue, like you said, you know, having artists talk about their work, having a dialogue instead of a monologue. I think those are like steps towards getting people to appreciate and understand contemporary art and realize that, like you said, they can find meaning, you know, from their own experiences that they've already had, the knowledge that they already have, they can bring to it. There seems to be a press, like people think that they have to have almost an art history degree uh, to be able mm. to relate to some art pieces. Uh, and for me, that means that we have not done our job well enough. For me, it's very natural to go to museums. I'm, I'm used to going to exhibitions. I don't mind saying I don't understand this. I have no idea what this is about, but I like it. Because I grew up in this and it also made me happy because when I was in school everything was so much facts and right answer is this and this is wrong and you get a bad grade but in you know when I went to art school or when I went to art class there was uh, so many open questions. So we have like a long question here, a longer question that um, that we've been keeping for you. <laughs> I am an art student at Umeå Art Academy. It is a quite small city and the art scene here is not big nor varied. There are not many, no one, people from the outside the school that come to see exhibitions that we make in our gallery, not even coming to the openings. It feels like the art students are totally separated from the rest of the culture scene and the real world, but I think I can change that. So I asked the administration for permission to arrange a group of students that will organize the gallery. Some ideas are to create a design profile, make a new name for the gallery, Facebook page, Instagram, to run open calls, etc. And they have given me green light. Now the problem is that none of the students are interested in doing this together with me. They respond that it is a good idea, it is great that I am engaged, but no one wants to join me in actually doing it. It would be so sad to see all this great potential go to waste because I really think our gallery could contribute as a super cool alternative to the well-established institutions here. But what can I do? Can I run the gallery alone? How do I include the rest of the students when I have to make decisions? Is it going to be too much work for me? How can I make people engaged? Very long. <laughs> it's a very long question. I think that you have to say that uh, she's not like in a unique I mean, it, ha it, it happens, and also met uh, artists that are not interested in, in maybe showing their... They're more interested in showing their work to a specific crowd than they are to the local community. I think that if I can give like a concrete... Like, I like to give concrete <laughs> advice, I would... <laughs> first of all, <laughs> I would have like a meeting. Could they have like good coffee, bums, even beer? Have a great atmosphere with her fellow students and they could really talk this out. Because, I mean, come on. I mean, she's gotten a great uh, opportunity here. She has to connect to local uh, organizations and... Uh, um, talk to them and hear how can uh, they be more engaged in what they do and so they can have like a collaboration. I mean, if she want to do it by herself, sure, but it's so much better doing with other people and they could do an <laughs> event together and start there because collaboration is so great. And then also she will meet other people that she probably wouldn't meet 
if she was not connected to some locals. Mm. I think maybe one of the issues is that the student went ahead and did all this without without uh seeing if anyone was interested first, like if, without doing the kind of organizing work first, like this is an idea I'm thinking of, I want to take it to the administration, would you be interested in doing this with me? Mm. She didn't include them from the start. Yeah, so okay. like what would this, what would you want? What are you feeling like we're lacking here? Yeah, that's um and yeah. But in 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 some ways this can feel like there's someone who's um who's leading this and they're asking you to come and do work. You know, like I have this idea, I went and did this, can you come and basically like do work? But if if people felt engaged from the start, then um it would be like something they built together. Let's go to the administration together. Um maybe let's have an open call and then people can submit their work, you know, because in a student setting, those kind of opportunities like get people set up for um, the future realities of being an artist. So like, you know, what, what does it look like to submit your work? What does it look like to be a juror or to, you know, select a, a curate for an exhibition? So these are different things They could be posed in a different way that like some people are looking to build their skills in a small town or in a smaller space, it's like, who are the fun people to be around? And if if it's really difficult to engage the students, maybe the students are not fun people to be around anyways, you know? At the same time, this um, a challenge that they're facing is there isn't, clearly isn't something like this that already exists. So a lot of these students might not even know what that looks like and, and to know that they want to be a part of it. So that's another hurdle, you know, if there are no artist-run spaces. What she can also do is there's there's other places you know around her and or, or around an, anywhere, uh, people who has been you know running gallery space from art school and and up and she can learn so much. Maybe it is an option to collaborate more with people outside the school. Like it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be. Um, I feel like depending on sort of the content or what kind of space you want to create, then sometimes it makes sense also to collaborate with people that are maybe not outside there like that they're not even artists it sort of depends what kind of uh, space or situations you want to create she doesn't have to think that she has to like make a choice of doing it on her own or not no no i think it's so good also to find some some people that just uh, you know like that brings you (laughs) that brings you joy so that it doesn't become yeah so you can make sure that it's fun yeah I'm sure you can find a few people, yeah. You have to find people with enthusiasm and uh, kind of like, also because then you can get so much more out of it, like if you want it together. Cross our fingers that this will, you know, the advice will help her. I have no, I don't, that was such a long question that I'm not sure that, have we gone through it all or? (laughs) I think the part that stands out the most to me, just because I can read it and it's in uh, all caps, is how can I make people engaged? And I don't think that you can make people engaged, but I think, you know, it sounds like what you're doing at the museum, you have a a level of enthusiasm about what you're working towards that you, it sounds like perhaps it's contagious. You know, some people get excited that maybe weren't expecting to be. And I think that discussing your ideas and all the things that you've already done, you know, at this point, it sounds like this student has like done a lot of, of, uh, has put a lot of thought and effort into this. And yeah, I think that that, could be a way um, to get people excited, but I can't. You can't make people become engaged. No, but you can try. 
Definitely, you could definitely try. <laughs> yeah. But she might read them wrong. I mean, people in art school, uh, I haven't been, you know, I'm art historian, but I mean, people can play cool, but they, they kind of want to do it anyway, but they kind of want to play cool. So she might give them some more time. And now we'll hear from an art student. My name is Sarah Dumaranda. I'm a, an art student at the art school in Savanger. Um... So here's a question the the curator is asking from artists. Like, uh, they want to know what should be the most important task of museums uh, of contemporary art. From your perspective as an artist. Choosing arts that have sort of historic significance or have been, uh, have been widely popular or that are important for for a community or, or for a country or, or a movement. Part of a role of a contemporary art museum is as well collecting like what's happening now. And I think to find out what's happening now, it's always, uh, uh, I mean, there are so many things happening at the same time. Well, for you, for you personally, when you go to a contemporary art museum, what kind of, what are you looking for? And if there's something that you would like that's not there already, what is that? I enjoy a lot of types of art. Um, I I kind of like the pieces where where you have to think a little bit, and there's a there's a there's a meaning to it, or there's a history. Um, I have a problem with sort of vapid pieces, or they're kind of like uh, like pieces that sort of miss some stu- substance. For instance, is why it's why I don't like going to like classic art galleries, for instance. Um, I know that they have history and and stuff like that, but there's just nothing for me to sort of chew on. And so, do you feel like uh, you know showing the showing of art and the preserving of art is enough for an institution, or do you feel like um, there's any kind of other roles that a museum plays in the in society? They shouldn't be bias, for instance. Uh, like if like as an art museum. Contra gallery, I would say that an art museum has has the role of preserving art and also making sure that not just some parts of of art culture are shown, and not and, and uh, that all parts are shown and not just some parts. Um, that they aren't biased in a way that, for instance, uh, political climate or or something like that would wouldn't allow, for instance. So, so you mean um, that they don't censor work based on? Are you talking about censoring? Yeah, for yeah, yeah for instance, uh-huh. like that they. Uh, I think it's important that as a museum you're conserve conserving everything, for instance, or everything that's important. So when you also like th- said like between like the gallery and the museum, uh, is that also are you then also thinking about like commercial value? You know, like. Um, like um, when you say like the dif- different role of the museum and the gallery, like should the uh, should should they have like different kinds of art so that the museum uh, should be less concerned with the with the monetary value of the work or uh... I'm not sure. Like, um, of course, monetary value is is important for collections, I, I suppose, but 
Um, I don't know, I'm just sort of thinking about the difference between like your role as a museum versus a showroom. I feel like a gallery in many ways is more open to showing uh, any kind of work versus a museum which maybe buys in um, pieces and stuff. When we're talking now, I'm just like realizing how much, and maybe I was already like asking sort of a leading question, right? Like I understood something while you were talking that uh, galleries often have a function of uh, selling art, you know, like so they, and they're often uh, partly, or they're based on uh, sales. Um, and that's like an important way for them to like to function. While as at a museum should definitely commit themselves more to uh, types of art as well that can't function in the same way on a commercial market, but is still important for like a, a discourse or what is happening right now. So so for example, and especially maybe like taking up on like different types of art movements or movements that are not in the commercial market that but that still needs to be like archived or or um, maintained somehow so for example mm -hmm. like um uh, uh maybe more like performance art or art so in a way when we first you asked uh, adelaide like if the museum is more conservative but in a way i wish it was like the other way around that the museum yeah. was a place where like oh Oh my god, like that's the that I would rather be surprised there than in a commercial mm -hmm. space. Because the idea in a commercial space is basically someone they want someone who's going to take something and live with it. You know, and it, like most of that art ends up at someone's house and then they a lot of people their concerns about what they have in their house are different than, you know, what a museum should be concerned with. Yeah. Um and I mean like if so a museum yeah, yeah. They should be dealing with really bizarre storage issues. You know, if if museums are doing the right thing, they should be like, how do we? Yeah, yeah. How do we store this work? How do we? <laughs> that's a really good. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's like, oh, how do we store this? Like, okay, if I'm asking that question, it gotta be, <laughs> then it, <laughs> and then it gotta be interesting. Yeah. Because I've had the opportunity to go into the storage of a few museums, and you know, they usually show you these uh, racks, and they pull them out, and there's paintings on them. And so a lot of people's idea of what art is, is painting because of this. I mean, of course, because of history, but also like it's continuing where, you know, like museums are collecting a lot of paintings, but then a lot of the work that people I know are making, it's mostly not painting. So it, it could be a matter of like doing what you're familiar with, you know, being what you're comfortable with, which museums should be testing the boundaries of what's what's comfortable but then also sort of like oh, oh, the different functions of art because all of that art that sort of goes on the walls or just like look at my look at my walls or like the stuff i put on the my walls are stuff that i want to live with you know like and i yeah. want the stuff i want to live with it make i want to be like i wanted to be like supportive of my mental health for example you know so right. yeah but, but that's like that's not what i'm looking for when i go to a museum like i don't need like crutches when i'm at the museum like i need crutches at home you know like i need support at home i i i mm -hmm. um i have i have been to like yeah like you said anna most of us want we want work that you what you want to live with and that you know you don't want something that's going to be disturbing um in your bedroom that you're going to see every day um but i have been to a couple people's houses that have these bizarre collections where you like 
I would, you know, it's the type of thing that you see and you're like, well, no one's going to buy that because, <laughs> you know, they're not going to live with that. But then people have it like this neon thing on the wall or this like sculpture that's like awkwardly filling up the living room. And I've even seen people who have purchased videos and they have like a tiny screen on the wall and they turn it on when people come over. Well, that's cool, though, because it means that contemporary art can also find a place in somebody's home. Uh... In this like studio apartment, now we have like a sculpture, like really oddly placed. And I'm just really worried that the artist might know that I have like that I'm being disrespectful in my placement. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm so afraid I like walk into it if it's not really high up. Practical concerns, yeah. yeah. And I know museums also have practical concerns, but I think that I mean, use the resources you have as a museum to to show work that's difficult. Yeah. To show or yeah. to store or to, yeah, even just difficult for the audience. Um, so I have a question for you that someone submitted. They want to know, um, how do I know that what I'm spending my time and energy on is the right thing to do, especially when there's so much in this world to fight for and against? So so how do, you, how do they know that they're using their time and energy on something that's important to them? You have to know what's important to yourself to begin with. So what do you care about? What do you want to? What do you want to care about? Uh, what are your values? Uh, and then think about your own values before you think about world values, for instance. Uh, and then sort of sort of weigh that up. Um, but for instance, just just knowing yourself um, uh, and and recognizing what what you get upset about, for instance. So if you care about something, I would naturally get upset about uh, about it if it like um, if somebody was sort of disrespecting my family, for instance, I would get upset because they're important to me. This is something that I really want to spend my time on um, because I also have reactions that that are completely uh, apathic. Uh, like mm -hmm. I really, really don't care about this. I have other things to mm -hmm. use my energy on. Um, so if you, yeah, maybe if you're a very practical person, it's uh, it's maybe important to sort of head out into something a little bit more like spiritual or mindful um, to sort of settle. If you're really stressed all the time and you just don't have even time to sit down and think and clear your thoughts, then of course you're not going to know what's important to you because you don't have time to introspect. I think one thing that's been interesting about being, uh, you know, isolated during this time is on a daily basis, we are asked to make, to see what's important to us. So like I've had a lot of friends say like, uh, they, there's certain things they thought they would do if they had more time. But then when it comes to having more time, you actually don't do those things. And then you realize those things aren't really important to you. Like maybe deep cleaning your house or reading more or something. Um, but then you, you have a choice, you know, if you're like, especially if you're like me, where I work for myself, um, where you have to figure out what you're going to do with each day and then you prioritize what's important to you. And for me, that has uh, turned out to be mostly family, spending time with my niece and nephew who I'm living with right now. Yeah, I've been calling my, you... my dad, for instance, a lot more than I used to and my grandparents. And What about you, Anna? What are your priorities have that have you discovered in this time? I'm... Just like getting back to cooking more uh, and doing, yeah, doing all this like home stuff, which I really, really like. But usually it's like 
uh, when I work, it's usually deprioritized. Like it's something that I do, but mm-hmm. now I'm like, um, yeah, I keep talking to my plants. But I think my like, cause I just started with plants while I was in quarantine. Now, I can show you guys uh, my cactus. It's been dying. <laughs> I had I had some plants once that I I thought were alive. They look exactly the same when they're dead. And so I thought they were still alive, but then I realized they were dead. Because <laughs> when you touched it, then the leaves would fall off. But it looked the same for like weeks. Oh. <laughs> do you wanna Do you wanna answer a personal question? Like some people ask institutional questions, but then others are. I mean, the one we just a- answered was personal, but it could be another one. Here's but, one. Okay. Um, it's kind of uh, difficult to know like what kind of person this is from, but uh, the person is asking for adwi- advice. So let's just uh, figure out how we can help this person. Is the <clears throat> is it too much to ask that a friend meets up with me without their boyfriend for once? Can I ask her for that? But I think I think maybe the person wants to know how to ask because they want to ask, but then. How to ask without... Oh, how to ask without seeming like a douchebag. You can say something like, for instance, um, hey, uh, I know that you guys, you have, you get, and you like spending time with your boyfriend and he's a nice guy, but I really just want to spend some time with you and me and it's been too long and, and I feel like we can't catch up if it's, if it's just not just the two of us. Just, just say that they just want some, some time together with the person and... It's just not the same if there's there's another person intruding, sort of. And I know what it's like, because my, my, best, my, my best friend, uh, AJ, uh, he always brings his boyfriend uh, when he comes to visit. Mm-hmm. And I always notice, like, it's just not the same. I've known AJ since, like, first grade of elementary school, and so we've known each other for ages. And so I'll just tell him, it's like, mm-hmm. you're not bringing your boyfriend. <laughs> and then most of, the okay. ti- most of the time, he'll be okay with it. I kind of like the first personal one. Um, you can ask it. I okay. Haven't, I haven't scrolled um, to it yet. Yeah. It's, this is in a workplace environment. So, uh, how to deal with a narcissistic psychopath as a co-worker. I don't know. Place in whichever workspace, workplace you like. Or just like how to deal with a pain in the ass person that you see every day. If you're, if you're dealing with a narcissist, um, perhaps... If they mean an actual narcissist, then perhaps just staying to facts and trying to be factual and, and not not giving it, give them anything thing to sort of uh, attack you with, uh, in a way. But if you're talking about a pain in the ass person, um, mm. those those are hard to handle. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, and sometimes like I, I know I'll get that I just sort of just immediately don't like somebody. For no good reason, but often that doesn't happen that often. Um, but uh, if it does, I'll try to try to talk to somebody. It's like, am I am I going crazy? Is mm-hmm. am I the bad one here? <laughs> uh, and then I'll uh, I'll try to reason myself out. And then if they agree, then I, I know I'm not crazy. <laughs> I, I've noticed I have a strange tendency to, like you said, there's sometimes you meet someone and you don't like them right away. And I've had instances like that, and then the person becomes one of my best friends. <laughs> and it's like everything about their personality grates against my personality. Like, I have so many friends that are really loud, and I'm a pretty quiet person, like, sensitive to sound. And most of my best friends <laughs> are loud or, like, 
I guess what I would say like embarrassing in public, you know, people who would embar- be embarrassing oh. to be around. I think if people smile all the time, then I just like, that's like scary to me. So maybe oh, like, really? yeah, so sometimes I think I just like, uh, can like avoid some people that are too, too happy. So I won't ever like notice, learn to know if they're actually a psychopath or not. Thanks for listening to season three of Ask Adelie and Anna, which was commissioned by the National Museum in Norway.